Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone as we move forward with the life of David. We are uh, down to two more messages, or two counting today, this week and next week. And um, then our Christmas message. And the last Sunday of the year will be given to looking ahead to what the Lord has put in our heart for the coming year on building godly generations. Um, we're going to be reading um, from 1 Kings today, 1 Kings chapter 2. And um, <clears throat> I just want to bring you up to speed. David has been our focus for several months now. We've looked at his youth, his years in the wilderness, his reign, his middle age. We moved into his last years. And uh, I want to say this, I don't mean for this to sound like a commercial. One thing we have not taken a lot of time to look into, we've only referred to it a couple of times, is David's heart as expressed through the Psalms. So I want to say this, I don't know of any book of the Bible that has been more consistently encouraging to me than the book of Psalms. It's um, a book of the Bible that I generally read through five or six times a year. That's how important it is. And again, this is not a commercial. None of this goes to me. But um, I wrote a book a few years ago organizing the Psalms into the 30-day devotional. And uh, it's a pattern that I've followed since Bible college days, and it's so important to me. We pulled those old copies out. They're in the bookstore, and, and uh, I think they're like $5, something like that. None of that goes to me. It goes into more books. In fact, we've got two coming out right after the first of the year. But um, I just wanted to tell you that uh, from now uh, to the end of the year, we're going to really focus on those books because I believe they can make a great difference for you. Um, but anyway... Um, I want to talk about David's years after the rebellion of Absalom today. Next Sunday, the concluding message on David, we'll be answering the question, why does a man with all of David's issues get remembered as being a man after God's own heart? It's a good question, but there's a better answer, and we'll talk about that next week. Um, I guess one way of looking at it is to understand David's life, it's, there's an old saying, a, a, a Korean saying as a matter of fact. It says the darkest place is sometimes right under the lighthouse. And uh, sometimes, sometimes um, God lets light come from the most unlikely of sources. But while that light is being radiated, sometimes there's darkness that has to be navigated. I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm talking about the rhythm, the given flow of life. Perhaps when David was coming back into town, he offered Barzillai a place at his table. And, he, and remember, Barzillai was one of the men that helped him as he went out of town. And as David came back into Jerusalem, Barzillai met him again. He met him going out. He met him coming in. And David said, come sit at my table. You'll never lack for anything and Barzillai said something that we're not quite sure of what to do with, but what Barzillai basically said, he was an old man, uh, much older than David, who was about 60 by that time. He said, no, it's, he kind of summarized his excuse this way. It's too far. It's too much. It's too late. It's too hard. Now, Barzillai did secure a blessing for his generations, but 
you could tell David was profoundly disappointed. And maybe, maybe it was Barzillai's response that made David say, in my last years, I'm not going to say it's too late, it's too far, it's too hard. I'm going to spend my last years in excellence. And we're going to find out today that that's exactly what David did. Maybe David, who contributed so much to the book of Psalms, maybe he was thinking of the 90th Psalm, which was written by Moses. And Moses says, the length of our lifetimes is 70 years, or if by reason of strength, 80 and David realized that he was closing in on that number 70 and he wanted to end well. I, I don't know what motivated him, but today I want to speak especially to the older generation. Now I can tell this service is going to be an absolute waste because there's only young people in here. But maybe you can tell your parents or you know somebody about what we talked about today. Um, to the older generation, I want to say learn this lesson from David with all the other lessons we've learned and with the great culmination of his life that we'll see next week, don't stop serving. Don't cave into the belief that I've done my time or that it's too late or that it's too far or that it's too hard. God has designed that wisdom is in the gray hair. God has, has designed that as we mature in Him, we get more and more that we are able to share with those around us and those that are coming after us. If there's one thing I have said over the last 20, 30 years, no, maybe the, just the past 20 years, if there's one thing I've said over and over again, I said, Lord, I know you don't do time travel, but I wish there was some way I had known what I know now when I was younger. Now, you say, more me too, I'd do everything different. Well, that's kind of a mixed statement because we would do something or a lot of things different if we knew then what we know now. But the problem is it's that experience that taught us what we know now. So it's kind of a catch-22. The best thing you can do is redeem what you have now. And that's what David does. I want to talk to you today about David's take on friends, foes, and fools. His last days the last decade approximately of his life, ten, last 10 to 12 years is what we're going to look at today. And it uh, tells us, well, let me say this, you'd be surprised how much of it had to do with legacy and relationship. Legacy and relationship. And loved ones, let me say this, to some of us that have more years behind us than we do ahead of us, I want you to know one of the best things you can do is stop, evaluate your life and decide what you want to leave behind in terms of legacy and in terms of relationship. To the young people, I would like to say the Bible embraces a culture of honor for the elderly especially. And um, I want to tell you that you can, one way you can really ensure the blessing of God on your life is by learning a culture of honor toward your elders. I'm not saying that because I'm elder to most of you. I'm saying that because it's an undeniable fact of life. The first commandment was pro with promise was that you honor father and mother that your days may be long upon the earth, as King James says. A better translation, honor your father and mother that you will enjoy a long stay in the land. What the commandment was saying was this, 
Be sure to honor those who have gone before you and that will ensure you keep receiving the blessing of God that he intended for you to enjoy. Now here's David in 1 Kings. You say, whoa, I thought we were in 2 Samuel. We have covered that book and, and I hopefully we've enjoyed it. But this morning we're going to end up in 1 Kings chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. There are, there are four great passages about passing in the Bible. One is the, the blessing of Jacob on his sons. The other is um, this passage here from David. The third and fourth are the moments, hours before death of Jesus, the days before death of Paul. I encourage you to read those four things when you start establishing your legacy. See what those four um, notable figures thought, were thinking about as they prepared to end this life and move into the next one. So he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and his commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel." And then we're going to skip down to the end of that chapter and we're going to go ahead and tell you how the story ends today, just so you know where we're headed. Then, it, it, boy, this verse taken by itself is a little boogery. The king gave the order to Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down and he died. Now, that's not the main thing I want to focus on. The main thing is that the kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. Father, help us to understand how to put the kingdom first so that it may be established in our hands in our life. Help us to learn what David learned about friends, foes, and fools, and help us to, um, during this Christmas season, to just end this year well and begin the next year well. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. The principal characters are David and Solomon, Bathsheba, Zadok, Abiathar, Joab, Gad, Abishai, and Adonijah. Now, I don't, there's not going to be a test on that. I don't expect you to memorize it. But there's also special recognition given to Benaiah, Nathan, and Zadok. The story in Scripture goes all the way from 2 Samuel 20 to 1 Kings chapter 2. And I also want you to know that 1 Chronicles has a lot about the life of David. Most of it is re repetition of Samuel, not all of it. So some things are in the lesson today from Chronicles that you won't find in Samuel. So we pay tribute to those seven chapters in 1 Chronicles. Here's the central truth. Don't allow yourself to become one-dimensional. Don't allow yourself, no matter how old you get, no matter how much you think you've done your time, don't allow yourself to become one-dimensional. Don't be satisfied. If this is what God wills, that's all right. But don't be satisfied to be known for something you did 20 years ago. Don't be satisfied with that. Now, if that's where God directs your life, that's up to Him. But let it be His decision, not yours. Don't be one-dimensional. We all have one or two central strengths. 
But David used his later years to stretch personally. And what we find out from Chronicles is that he established arts. He established uh, people that were able to empower worship. Worship took on a new dimension under King David. He improved the administration. The office of king was solidified and was intensified and was modified from what it had been. And he established a culture of financial generosity in Israel. It is, by today's standards, David gave tens of millions of his own money to the establishing of the temple. Bobby Connor gave us a goal to follow. Remember this, Bobby Connor said, the day is coming when God will take the zeal of youth and the wisdom of age and will forge those two things together to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in these last days. Now let's think it over as we review these chapters. Chapter 20 begins with another rebellion. Can you believe it? David had just gone through the most trying time of his life. It was the rebellion of a man named Sheba. He was a man from the warrior tribe of Benjamin. And when Jacob blessed his sons, he said this pronouncement upon the uh, tribe, uh, upon Benjamin and his, his, his family. He says, you are like a wolf that is on the prowl. And I don't think he was talking about deception. I don't think he was talking about like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. But he was saying, you are a persistent warrior. You are a persistent hunter. And the tribe of Benjamin had been known for their military exploits. And that was the tribe, of course, from which um, King Saul came. And there was a man from this warrior tribe that convinced the non-Judean tribes once again to rebel. You say, well, how could they do that again after... God dealing so forcefully with Absalom. In Mark Rutland's book on David, he has a great quote that I included in your notes, or I think it's in your notes. An insidious, indirect effect of rebellion is that even if the rebel rebellion fails, confidence in leadership is shaken. And that's exactly why it can happen in a church, it can happen in government, it can happen in a family. And it happened in David's life. Even though the rebellion failed and David came back in, welcome to the throne, the confidence in him was shaken. That some people would say, well, if this can happen once, it's just a matter of time till it happens again. And they began to, to, to pledge their alliances and their loyalties to places other than the king. And um, Sheba raises his hand, hand against David. And Joab... We know our friend Joab, who is king, uh, or excuse me, general of the army of David, and a man who sided with Absalom, strangely enough, Amasa, or Amasa. He was the leader of the army of Judah. Somehow, Amasa uh, distinguished himself, repented enough, whatever, that David said, well, he got on the wrong side of the last fight, but I can trust him again. And loved ones, when someone gives you a second chance, don't ever take it lightly. They were summoned by David to put down the rebellion. And he ordered Joab, he ordered Amasa. He says, come together in three days and put down this rebellion. Now here we see a real insight into Joab's character. Joab's favorite Bible verse was, same dogs don't bite me twice, you know. 
He said, I've seen disloyalty. He said, I've seen a lack of uh, intensity of devotion to the king. And when three days passed and Amasa had not yet gathered, he was late coming, Joab said, oh, this is Absalom all over again. And when Amasa got there, Joab reached out and took him by the beard. Now this sounds strange to us because number one, most of us don't have beards. Um, but the way men would greet each other is they would generally touch each other's beard and pull themselves to each other and embrace or kiss each other on the cheek. And Joab reaches out and grabs his beard. And when he does that, in his other hand, he has a knife and he sticks it into Amasa and Amasa was disemboweled. I mean, it's a very graphic picture. So that didn't mean he was stabbed. It meant he was ripped, you know. And uh, as my pastor used to say, from, from, uh, from neck to navel, he was just ripped open. And he falls down and he's dying on the road. And then one of Joab's men says, everybody that's with Joab come this way. Well, that was a strong motivation for everybody to side with Joab. Um, Sheba fled to a fortified city in an attempt to escape Joab. And Joab said, we're not going to show any mercy to this guy. We're going to take him out. And he cuts off the city's uh, supplies. No one can enter or leave. They're laying siege ramps. They're about to destroy this city. And a woman who was very influential in the city calls down over the, the wall of the city, because this was a fortified city. And she said, why are you doing this? We're Israelites. Why are you laying siege to us? And he said, we're not here to destroy the city. You are just a needless casualty of war. A rebel against the king has gone into your city and give us this rebel and we'll leave you alone. And the lady disappeared in a little while. She comes back and she says, here. And she throws the head of Sheba down to Saul and uh, I mean uh, down to Joab and Joab says, all right, let's go home. And that's the end of the rebellion. Chapter 21 is where we go next. And what we find out is that David not only faced that rebellion, but David faced a famine. For three years, Israel was under famine. And God had given instruction. You guys with me? Am I going too fast? Okay, you'll thank me when we get through on time. And... Um, for three years there had, been in, there had been a famine and God gave them instruction in the law of Moses. He says, I'm sending you into a land of former and latter rains. He says, it's not like it was in Egypt where if a famine comes, you just pump water out of the Nile, which was inexhaustible. He says, you're going to depend on the former and latter rains. And he said, if the rains don't come and famine is the result, ask me what the sin is about. And I'll show you what you've done wrong. And then you can repent and the blessing will come. Well, David began to wonder after three years, is there something going on we don't know about? Now, I want to point out, David had nothing to do with this. But way back in Joshua 9, you remember that as Joshua was going through the land, um, the Gibeonites deceived him. Now, they were a mixture of the Hivites and the Amorites. They were, they were designated to be destroyed by Israel because of their worship of Baal. And they tricked Israel. They acted like they were ambassadors from a land far, far away. And they tricked David, or excuse me, Joshua. They put on old shoes and they got moldy bread. And they said, when we left our home, these shoes were brand new. When we left home, this bread was fresh out of the oven. And look at it now, it's hard as a rock. We're from a long way off and we've come to make covenant. Joshua did not pray 
which is a sermon in itself. And he made a covenant with them that he would never destroy them. And then they began to realize within a matter of days that they had made a covenant with the enemy. But God made Joshua and the Israelites keep their vow to the Gibeonites. But the Bible says um, in chapter 21 that because of the zeal of Saul, Saul said, we, you know, we're going to clean up this town. We're going to fix everything that, uh, that isn't right. He killed many of the Gibeonites and God expects his people to keep their word. So decades earlier, Saul had violated the word of Joshua and this famine was the residual effect of Saul's mistreatment of the Gibeonites decades earlier. He had forgotten the vow of Joshua and killed several Gibeonites. Now, God said, this is why you're under famine. Terms of restitution were not specified by God. So, you know, God didn't tell David what to do. And, and David did the only logical thing he could do. Uh, technically, as king, he could have decreed what should be done. But he knew this was a matter of justice before God, not a matter of justice before David. David's tendency was to show kindness to the household of Saul. David didn't want any more bloodshed, but he knew this mattered to God. So he went to the Gibeonites who said, it's not enough for you to buy us off with money. They negotiated the execution of seven descendants of Saul. Now you say, whether that's right or wrong, two things I want to point out. It was another time, number one, and number two, this was not what God demanded. I mean, I don't know how God felt about it, but this was not, God didn't demand the execution of seven, quote, innocent people. But keeping his vow to spare Jonathan's family, David selected two of Saul's remaining sons. This was from the family of a woman named Rizpah. And five of Saul's grandsons. You'll remember his daughter Merab, from the earlier story when Saul was alive, five of her, grands, uh, of her sons were taken to be executed as well. Now, they were killed just as the Gibeonites demanded. And David was so moved by the behavior of Rizpah, two of her, of her sons were killed and she would not let their bodies suffer the desecration, desecration of public uh, uh, decay and she drove away the birds of prey and she, she can you imagine what that did to her to see her sons bloat and then begin to decay but she demanded treatment of dignity for her sons and David was so moved by this this is amazing to me it shows something about the heart of God and it shows something about the heart of David David said, we're going to give these men a burial with dignity. And he went and salvaged the bones of Jonathan and of Saul. And he buried them all together in a place of honor. And when that occurred, the famine ended. David moves on from those two challenges, the rebellion of Sheba, the, the famine and the horrible story with the Gibeonites, David goes back to war with the Philistines. Now, let me tell you the end from the beginning. Israel wins, and from this moment on, Philistia is decimated, 
And the only remnants of Philistia that exist today are among Arab peoples, just a smattering here and there. Um, David learned his lesson about staying home earlier. You remember in the time when kings went to war, David stayed behind and ended up being guilty of adultery and murder. But there's a time to, to go to battle and there's a time to stay home. And David learned that at his age, at this point in his life, it was time to stay home. This war was unlike most battles. There was such hatred between Israel and Philistia, and in particular, such hatred between David and the house of Gath in Philistia, that it was not just a national war, but the descendants of Goliath, one of them with six fingers and six toes on each foot and hand, um, the, the giant says, you killed one of us, but you can't kill all of us. And so part of the war was very, very personal. And David said, I killed your daddy and I'll kill you too. The problem is that now David is in his mid sixties and he's remembering the zeal of his youth but he gets in over his head and David is about to be killed and Abishai, one of his nephews, has to rescue him. Now there's nothing dishonorable about that. It just goes to show you learn when it's time to fight and you learn when it's time to get your boys to fight. And all of David's men made a decision. You can come out to lead us. We know that you're not going to stay at home, but you can come out to lead us, but we do the fighting. And that was a turning point in David's life. We go to chapter 22 and David sings this beautiful song. It's normal. That's why I'm promoting the book of Psalms. It's normal for someone coming to the end of a life that's been well preserved and well protected by God to sing praise. And loved ones, let's all live our lives so that when it comes time for us to go, we leave behind a song instead of a dirge. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. The psalm was about a life of deliverance from God, a life of strengthening by God, a life of care by God, all a result of God's glory. So we go from chapter 22 to chapter 23. This is one of the most revealing chapters in 2 Samuel about the heart of David. Um, and, and I want to say this, this is where David honors his friends. He takes time as he realizes his faith, not his faith, I'm sorry. My mind is working so far ahead of my mouth. Forgive me. His health is failing and he wants to be sure that he says thank you to a special group of people that made his successful reign possible. He's already given glory to God in chapter 22 but in chapter 23, he wants to give appreciation to the men in his lives that went to war with him. Now, for reasons we only partially understand, I've said it the last two weeks. I want to say it one more time. God is realigning us in our friendships. He is giving us um, um, a strengthening in our friendships. And I believe that it's for the purpose of encouragement. I believe it's for the purpose of restoring a culture of honor in a culture that is losing a sense of honor. But I suspect as we move further along, we will understand more and more why God is telling us no more Lone Rangers. 
Don't forsake your friends. You've got to pull together. Church has got to be family. And David in this chapter, we don't have time to deal with it. You could preach a series through this chapter. But David honors 37 men who had served him. There is, first of all, the three. These were the men that were noted as the greatest warriors. And he talks about the typical kind of exploits that they did. Um, Jashobim, Eliezer, and Shammah are men that have incredible stories that we don't have time to go into today. And David said there's not only the three, but there are two that have been by my side. He said they're almost as great as the three, but they certainly deserve their own class uh, classification, Abishai and Benaiah. We're going to hear more about Benaiah in just a few minutes. And then there was a group called the Thirty. Now, this was out of 300 men that later became 600 men and may have grown beyond that. We don't know. But, and I only listed their names out of honor. I only listed their names out of honor. We don't have time to even read the list. But there's something we need to pay attention to. I said there were 37 names. You can count 36 and you think, well, who's missing? And it's amazing to me that David steps into a very vulnerable position, a very difficult position, and he gives honor to Uriah the Hittite. He says, I could not have been what I became without the contribution of Uriah the Hittite. And he says that knowing that he betrayed him in the highest and worst possible way. He took his wife, he took his life, he took his future, he took a legacy Uriah left no sons behind. And in Israel, one of the worst things that could happen to you was to, to leave this life without family to carry on your name. David said, I mistreated him in the worst possible ways, but it, this does not make up for it. It doesn't justify, it doesn't make it right. But I realize that Uriah needs to be honored just as these other men. And the only reason his service was cut short was because I, I had his life taken. It's a huge thing, a very sobering truth, a special place of honor. Now, we get to chapter 24, and something happens that you say, David, David, what are you thinking? We call it the census, the census. Um, God forbade Israel of taking a census because their, their strength was not in their numbers. Now, there were a couple of times he told them to take a census, but it was at his command, but they were forbidden to, to count. It would be like us sitting in, in a pile of gold that we had earned and just running our fingers through it and saying, my strength has given me this. I can buy anything I want. I can be anything I want. God says, that's what will happen if you start numbering. You began with 70 or 75 souls coming out of Egypt. And I want you to know as I bless you and you become like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heaven, it will bring pride into your heart, so don't do it. But David, we don't know what, I mean, we know it came from the devil. We know that the devil prompted his heart to do it. David said, I want you to Joab. He says, you go from Dan to Beersheba. And that's the way, whenever you see that phrase, Dan to Beersheba, it means the whole country. Because Dan is up at the northern border and Beersheba's down toward the southern border. Cover the whole land. Find out how many men that we have that are able to go to war. That was how a king distinguished himself among other kings. 
And Joab says, oh, God has blessed us and may the, may the reign of the king be better and greater than it's ever been before. Here's a man named Joab who's rough as a cob. Joab says, but David, we don't want to do this. You know that this is against the commandments of God. And this is going to bring the wrath of God upon us. And David says, do it. And it gives in that chapter the, the systematic way that Joab went all through Israel, counting the men that were men of warrior age. And he came back and said, David, there are 800,000 warriors in Israel, 500,000 in Judah. So here David sits with 1.3 million men that can go to war if necessary. But something beautiful and something very ugly happens. The very ugly thing is that David um, takes pride in this. And the, um, the good, beautiful thing that happens is that it says his heart was smitten. His heart was smitten. In other words, God convicted David. And loved ones, I know I'm, it sounds like I'm trying to put a dozen sermons within a sermon today. But never lose the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that can say this is wrong. Don't go this way. Don't handle this this way. The greatest, the greatest uh, gift that you have from God is a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Gad comes in and gives David three options. He says this is a heinous sin against the Lord. A lot of Bible scholars tend to believe that this was the greatest, I don't mean greatest as in good, I mean largest, most consequential sin in David's life. Bigger even than Uriah and Bathsheba because that, that brought a curse on Israel, but it was primarily on David's family. Now he brings a curse on the nation. So it was perhaps the most grievous sin that David committed in his life and that just goes back to what Pastor Darren taught us. No matter how long you've been on the road, no matter how far down the road you've gone, you're just as close to the ditch as you were the day you began. So you've always got to keep watching. He says you can have three years of famine or you can have three months of fleeing before another enemy or you can have three days of Famine, it's, it, basically it was pestilence. It was a disease that would run through the camp of Israel. And David, fresh under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, says, I know what it's like to fall into the hands of man. Don't let that happen. Let me fall into the hands of God. And so God sent a pestilence or disease into the land of Israel. And as God allowed this to happen, um, David moves to the threshing floor uh, of Arona and he buys the threshing floor. The, 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 the plague is almost, it's almost like you can see it coming. He buys the threshing floor and offers a sacrifice of repentance. Uh, Aruna says, take it. You, I don't, the king can have anything I have. And David said, I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing. So he pays the price. And we'll talk about the threshing floor and what it was in another lesson. Not, not with this series, but another time. And when David manifested his repentance through um, the offering of the sacrifice, it says that the angel that was sent by the Lord 
stop the plague, but not before 70,000 people die. 70,000. Chapter 25 is the rebellion of Adonijah. Adonijah, taking his cue from his brother Absalom, hires 50 people to ride before him and run before his chariot, I should say. And he realizes that his father's health is failing. <coughs> and <clears throat> what he does, Justin, I'm sorry. Thank you. He realizes that his father's health is failing. And this was, this was before the, the established tradition of the eldest son coming to the throne. He, he finds himself supported by Joab. Joab, after all he's been through with David, switches sides. After resisting Absalom and bringing down the rebellion of Sheba, Joab changes to support of Adonijah. Maybe it's because he realized David was dying. Maybe it was because David can't kill the Philistines anymore. We don't know what happened. But he defects. And to Joab's credit, it wasn't an intentional overthrow of David in his mind probably. It was Joab positioning himself for job security with the next king. But we also find Abiathar, the priest whose whole family was wiped out at Nob, way back by Saul and Doeg, the Edomite, the only survivor who brings some holy relics with him to David. He's carried the ark. He's followed David with the, the um, uh, Urim and the Thummim, the breastplate of the high priest. He's followed David all of these years. And Abiathar, probably nursing a grudge against David, maybe he said, my family would still be alive had it not been for you. He turns to Adonijah as well. And then we see something, as I said, this would make a great mini-series. Nathan, Bathsheba, Gad, Benaiah, they all realize we know David's heart is for Solomon to be king. So a couple of them go in and say, King, this is what Adonijah is doing and not wanting to overwhelm the king. They tell him this is what's going on. And then on cue, the prophet comes in and says, David, have you heard this is what's going on? And Bathsheba said, you've promised that my son Solomon will sit on the throne. You must make a declaration. And David made an amazing um, response. He declares that his son Solomon is now king in his place. So Solomon rises to the occasion and Adonijah and all of his associates run to their home. Okay. Now we'll talk about that in just a moment. Solomon's now king. David's dying. And in 1 Kings 2, David's advice to Solomon is given. And David says something that does not fit well with our mind. He says, Solomon, act like a man, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And this is what you need to do. Kill Joab and kill Shimei. Now, I used to think Shimei was just David holding bitterness. But David said, you're a wise man. You're a wise man. You understand why you need to do this. And he said, you need to kill Joab because he has shown himself to be an opportunist. 
He has been a cold-blooded murderer, the way he treated Abner, the way he treated uh, Amasa. He's a cold-blooded murderer and he is an opportunist. And the moment you show any weakness, people will gravitate to him and Joab will declare himself king. And he said, Shimei, he says, um, you're going to have to deal with him. He came against me with libelous statements. He came against me in rebellion. I showed him mercy. He, said, he didn't say go out and kill him now. He said, you watch him and you're going to have to be sure that he ends with a bloody death. I don't believe any longer, the more I study it, I don't believe it was David saying, get vengeance for me. I believe it was David saying, Solomon, you're in the big leagues now. And you've got to understand, these men who've tried to take my kingdom, they will try to take your kingdom. You're going to have to strengthen yourself and establish yourself in the kingdom. That's why at the end of chapter 2, it says that um, Benaiah killed Shimei and Therefore, Solomon strengthened his hold on the kingdom. But it's still hard for us to grasp. That leads us to the second part of chapter 2. David, I don't mean to be indelicate, but he's an old man. Not old by our standards, but David had lived a hard life. He was now 70 years old and he was becoming, um, I don't know if the word is frail. I, we, we don't know. But David would go to bed at night. This is the same David that slept out in the desert cold. This is David who can't get warm at night. And I don't mean to be indelicate, nor do I mean to sound sexist, but they thought the best way to warm him up is to bring in a young lady and let her sleep with David. But the Bible says that David had no relations with her. Um, and, and the indication is that David was unable to have relations with her. And even though she would snuggle with him at night, it did not keep him warm. So he knows he's in decline. But everybody knows that Abishag is now not only David's bedmate, but she tends to David. She's with him all the time. Not Abigail, not Bathsheba, Abishag is. And um, when, when Adonijah's... Um, rebellion fails. Whenever David says, no, Solomon's the king, Adonijah and all of his friends go home. David lets them have mercy. He doesn't want to bear the death of another son. So he sends them home. He talks to Abiathar, the priest, and, he, and this is what Solomon says. He says, because you have carried the ark and because you've walked with my father David all these years, you can go home. But don't ever show yourself here again. You've betrayed my father by going to Adonijah. And then Benaiah and Zadok are promoted. Joab, realizing that he is uh, no longer in the favor of Solomon, flees to the tent of the Lord. Now what Abiathar had done... Abiathar went in and held to the horns of the altar and he says, have mercy. And David had mercy and let him go home. Now, Joab does the same thing and Solomon says, come to me. You're going to have to deal, uh, you're going to have to answer for your crimes. And he says, no, I'll die here. He says, they'll treat me the way, they'll just let me go home. Beniah comes back to Solomon and says, this is what he says. He says, I'm going to die here. And he's, Solomon says, yeah, he's trying to do what my brother did. Uh, if he wants to die there, kill him. So Beniah goes in and kills Joab. 
And you got to think of how prominent Benaiah was. This is the guy who was in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. This is the man that was right below the three and above the 30. You got to think of what a man he was to take the life of Joab. And Joab is buried at his home in the wilderness. He is, um, Benaiah is promoted to the general of the army in Joab's place. Shemai, David said, you're going to have to deal with him. You're going to have to kill him and it's going to have to be a very public death. Now we don't operate that way. I know that. But Shemai has been shown mercy and he, and this is his sentence. Solomon says, don't ever leave the city because every time you go somewhere, you are up to no good. Do not ever leave the city. The moment you leave the city, you will die. Well, we don't know how long it lasted, but Shemai had a slave that ran away and he left. He was told not to cross the Kidron Valley and the Kidron Valley. If this is Jerusalem and that's the wilderness, the Kidron Valley would be the altar area. So he goes out past the Kidron Valley out of town like he's not supposed to do. He comes back with his slave and the guards around the city gates tell Solomon what's happened. And Solomon says, we told you not to do this. And he said, well, I just, I just went to get my slave. He says, that's not the point. You have no regard for the authority of the king. You dishonored my father. Now you've dishonored me. Benaiah, you're getting the rhythm. Kill him. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what do we do with this? What are the Christian life lessons? You've got to hurry um, to finish on time. This is a, a, a remark. The first one is a, is a Christian life lesson I want to make in passing, but it's a very important principle. I want you to know that justice is so important to God. Unresolved evil or sin can affect God's people for generations. There's a tendency among theologians to say that this law of sowing and reaping was done away with by Ezekiel and Jeremiah when they made us understand that a man or woman will answer for their own sin. He was not doing away with this principle. What he was doing is, say, see, in both the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah, what the people of Israel were doing, they were saying, well, we're not guilty of anything. This is the sins of our fathers. And he said through the prophets, you need to understand you're suffering for your sin, not the sins of your fathers. But the principle of sowing and reaping is in the New Testament. He told us when we study the Ten Commandments that the sins of the fathers will be visited on the second and third generations. He wasn't saying that our children are guilty of our sins, but he says whenever we have unresolved sin and evil in our life, it will affect our children. If you don't believe it, look at what alcoholism does to your children. Look at what unfaithfulness does to your children. Look at what greed does to your children. Yeah, it, it keeps getting visited. So we need to understand that unresolved sin and evil can affect God's people for generations. And God will sometimes bring us to the table like he did over the Gibeonites. That's why you'll think everything's going fine and then all of a sudden God brings something up. You say, Lord, I hadn't even thought of this in 10 years. He said, I know in your past due. Let's deal with this. Let's get rid of this. The second thing, let me, let me go to the third. Let me go to the third because I really want to end on the second thing. Um, watching is a lifetime assignment. You never get too old to watch. 
we are to be constantly on our guard for two things. I don't have time to read the scriptures today, but we're to constantly be on watch for the return of the enemy to try to get back into our life. And we're to constantly be watching for the return of the Lord because that's the next great thing on God's agenda. Um, and, the, and the last one, before I go back to number two, let's learn to live our life so that regrets are minimized. You know, this is Christmas and everybody that really loves Jesus needs to read a Christmas carol, uh, the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, one of the great apostles. And I love, I love the way the a Christmas carol ends. It says that as, hate, as hateful of Christmas as Scrooge was, nobody, it could be said, kept Christmas after his redemption or reclamation, I think is a word that Dickens used. Nobody kept Christmas better than he. Loveless, no matter what damage may be associated with the way we've lived, let's live the rest of our lives in a way that our regrets are minimized. Now, here's the last thing I want to share with you. There will come a time for people of faith, even kings and queens, to step into a new role. This is, this is my word especially to those of us that are of a certain age. I'll let you draw the line in the sand. There's a time to kill giants. There's a time to teach others how to kill giants. And then there's a time to let others kill giants. David was beginning to understand that. Some of the lessons he learned the hard way. Retirement can be overrated. I'm not saying retirement's wrong. But I'm saying, in, particularly in regard to the kingdom of God, retirement can be overrated, but reassignment is wisdom. As we reach that place in our lives, we don't back away. We don't move away. I read a survey the other day. It was talking about pastors that had been at churches a long time. Because I've, you know, I've been here 25 years. I want to be sure that I end well. And it said there are, there are three trends that pastors that have been in a church a long time, and I'm trying to make this principle apply to all of us. He says, one, is, is, there have been two trends that are, that are very counterproductive and very destructive. One, a pastor that still is able to, to do ministry just walks away. And he says that damages himself or herself damages the church. You don't just walk away. The other damaging scenario is a pastor that stays in his old role too long. He, 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 he's still breathing. He's still living. So he thinks at 70 or 75, he needs to do what he did at 35 or 40. And the church withers and dies and he's worn out. But they said there is a small group of pastors that flourish and a small group of churches that flourish. And it is this, the pastor doesn't walk away. The pastor doesn't continue to act like a 30-year-old. He says the pastor repositions himself. He repositions himself in the church. And instead of the father of the church, he becomes the grandfather of the church. And loved ones, that's not just true about pastors. And no, I'm not making an announcement. That's not just true about pastors. That's true, that's true about businesses. That's true about families. You know, as a grandfather, I can tell you right now, I don't have the energy I had when my kids were little. So I do all the damage I can do and then just pass them back. I have a new role. I want to encourage this church to embrace a culture of honor toward the elderly. Numbers ch chapter 8, 
it, it tells us that in regard to the Levites, after the priest or the Levite reached the age of 50, he wasn't slaughtering animals anymore. I don't know if you've ever like, you know, uh, dressed a deer or something like that. That's hard work. And to do that by the thousands, it was the work of young men, not old men. So at the age of 50, the Levites, their position changed. They didn't cease to be Levites. They didn't cease serving. But what they did is instead of slaughtering the animals, they pointed. They assisted. But they knew they needed to change. Now, um, uh, Leviticus 19 this is, this is the way Israel operated. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. God said, if you really want to understand what it is to serve the holiness of God, learn lessons like this. Stand for the aged. I've seen people, whether it's in district politics or church politics or governmental politics or in family relationships, I've seen what it's like when the young foment rebellion against the old. And I want to tell you, it never ends well. It never ends well. Proverbs 23, 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. You say, ah, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, let's look at a New Testament verse. Do not rebuke an older man. This is a word to the pastors. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. You say, Pastor, what are you trying to say? Let me wrap it up by saying this. God says, I want the blessing of this generation to pass on to the next generation. We've said it this way. We want our ceiling, we want our greatest moments to be the floor of the next generation. But the key to that is the youth honoring the aged and the aged honoring the youth. It's a culture of honor. You know, you say, well, pastor, I'm just, I just don't understand this young generation. I understand. But you got to understand, they've got disadvantages. All the great music died in the 70s. I mean, there, there, are, there are battles they got to fight that we just don't understand. You know what a church can do to be a really great church? Is not die on the hill saying we've never done it that way before. But it's to take the younger generation by the hand and say, this is great. This is fabulous. God's hand is on you. Let me tell you a few lessons I've learned that just might help you along the way. Father, thank you for this marvelous man of God. With all of his warts and scars and mistakes and sins, he was still a man after God's own heart. We'll talk about why next week in the closing message. But I pray that you would cover us today. I pray you would cover us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.